I was apologizing to Leon Blue, Dr. Blue, for something that happened, I think, a couple of Sundays ago. You know, in in my bantering back and forth with you sometimes, I, I step over the line. And I stepped over the line, I think, with him. He says, oh, it didn't, but I, I just didn't honor him like I should have. And I wanted to apologize to him. I have, and I, I felt like I needed to apologize to all of you. And <laughs> frankly, it's a good introduction to the lesson today. And I didn't do it for that. I just, But what's happening, I'm putting these, well, not just these, but college church sermons 30 years ago, we're putting, transferring them to a website, and I'm having to listen to every one of them. I've never listened to a single sermon of mine ever. Now I'm having to listen to all of these to, to clean them up, because they're not all presentable. And uh, in listening to this one two weeks ago, I thought, oh, ouch, that wasn't that really wasn't what I wanted to come across. So we'll leave that like that. But as a simply kind of an introduction to the lesson today, we're going to be talking about the earthiness of the vessel that contains the glorious message of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the emphasis is on the brokenness of the vessel. So it actually introduces what we're talking about. Let's give a just a very brief review. Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians 3, really the whole chapter. talks about the magnificence and the magnitude of the ministry that we have. Now, he first of all begins uh, in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3. He talks about the, look if you would, uh, now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And then back up above that in verse 5, such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. And then he goes on in chapter 3 and uh, shows us the nature of the new covenant. Look at verses uh, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces, all reflecting upon the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All of this together saying that we have a ministry that excels. And then he blows us really out of the saddle when he says in chapter 4 and verse 1 that we have this ministry from God. That this ministry, this ministry of transformation is from God. It's not from us. And so in a sense it startles us with the, with the magnificence of it and yet it settles us down by saying, it, don't, don't be concerned. It's not from you. You're not the one that takes care of the transformation. This comes from the Lord, who is the, the Spirit. And then watch this, though. Look at verse 6. He identifies just who, whose likeness it is 
into whose likeness we're being transformed. Listen to this. It is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has made his light shine in our hearts to give the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. What is he saying there? What God is it that he's talking about that we're being transformed into his likeness? The God that created light. He says here that the God into whose likeness the ministers of Jesus Christ are being transformed is the God of creation. Now you think about that. The God into whose likeness we are being transformed is the God of creation. He's the God that spoke light into existence. Now that's, that's strong, but that's not anything more than what Jesus claimed. Jesus said, if you've seen me, he said, you have what? You've seen the Father. But in these few verses here, we see the magnificence and the magnitude of our ministry of development of the disciples into ambassadors from one degree of glory to another. But there is no limit to what we are being transformed into because there is no limit to the God into whose likeness we are being transformed. It's an ever-going, ever-increasing, never-diminishing if we are looking at the one who is leading us, Jesus our Lord. Then, all of a sudden, wham! He confronts us with the other side of the coin. What is the other side of the coin? Look at verse 7. But we have this treasure... We have this treasure in what? In jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He talks about the unlikely containers. The unlikely containers into which this treasure is being put. Now there are four, there are four major sections in this uh, Second Corinthian letter that emphasize this earthiness. And this theme, this theme is the most often recurring theme in the whole letter of Second Corinthians. He starts out with it in chapter 1. He concludes with it in chapter 12. And then two major parts of it are in, the, in between these two bookends. And it must be important or he wouldn't have spent that much time on it. If you'll notice, first of all, 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. And then there's another one, uh, 4, 7 through 12, which is our text today. And let me just read the text today right now. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. 
And then there's the third in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. And then the last one of these four, to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. He was talking about the, the heavenly revelations. He was caught up into the third heaven. And he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. These four references to the earthiness of the, of the container. And there are people in this, there are people here this morning, you and I, some more to the degree than others, but who are, who are feeling crushed, you're feeling perplexed, you're feeling persecuted, you're feeling hardships and distresses. All of this is, is a part of being a clay jar, a clay pot. Everybody has them, not just Christians. Everybody, every human being, is a cracked pot. Every human being may not be a cracked pot, but everybody is a cracked pot. Chips, uh, bruises, persecutions, hardships, all of it. So here we are with these four distinct lengthy sections in Second Corinthians, and I, I hope you've picked up enough of the nature of what we've been reading and what's on the page. I hope you've sensed enough of the nature of it that this question will be meaningful to you. Why on earth would God put such a treasured, valuable treasure in such invaluable containers? Why? If it is so magnificent, as you say, and if the magnitude of it is so great, why on earth, why on earth would He put it in jars of clay? so that there will be no confusion as to where the value of it comes from. Now, in the, in the realm of jewelry, a diamond is always placed where to show it off. It's always placed on a background that's black. You never put a diamond on a background of glittering rhinestones. You put the diamond on a background of black velvet for the purpose of showing off the diamond. That's why he put the good news, that's why he put this ministry in us, in order to show off the good news. Now, there are four of these areas in here that I want us to look at, and it, there are four different reasons, four different reasons that lie within this uh, thinking of his to show off the diamond. They're introduced by a Greek word, and it's up at the top of your page there, the word hina, I, uh, iota nu alpha, I-N-A in English. The hina means in order that or so that, that sort of a, uh, it just simply says, so that this might be true, or in order that this might be true. Now watch if you would. There are four of these. Look at 6, 3 through 10. The first one there on the page. 6, 3 through 10. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that... I've circled it so you could see it. 
And I've underlined what he's so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So the first one of these I'm calling recognition. Or qualification, excuse me. This is qualification. The qualification for being a minister of Jesus Christ, according to what this text says, is being a servant. Servanthood. He said we put no obstacle in our path, we put no obstacle in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, in other words, to the contrary of that, we, we are servants of God, we're servants for God to the world. Now, you know what that says in terms of what our, the nature of our work is? Anytime we come across as being anything but servants, you're putting an impediment in your ministry. You're putting an obstruction in your ministry. If we come across, and this is true whether it's individually or corporately, any individual Christian following Christ who comes across as anything but a servant... You're putting an impediment in your ministry. You're putting a block in the way. Let me tell you something else. Any time a, a church comes across in the community as being anything but a servant church, that's the explanation of why if, if your ministry isn't succeeding, go back and check who you are in the eyes of the people who are watching you. Are you a servant? Or are we judges? Now... We need to answer that question because often we've come across we've come across as judges rather than servants. But he says here we put no we put no obstacle in their way, anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited, but rather as servants we commend ourselves. You see, you can't preach a message without it accompanying the messenger. If your message does not match your messenger, then it won't work. There's no power there. Are you okay with this as far as the qualification? What would happen if God were to put a sign out saying, Wanted help? The job? Spreading the aroma of Christ everywhere. Qualification required. A servant mind, a humble spirit, willing to spend and be spent, willing to die, willing to... What if he would put that out and you would make application? Would it do us any good to make application for that job? See, that's what he's saying here. This is what's needed is to people to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. But one of the main qualities is you're going to have to be a servant to people. Now, if you don't like being a servant of people, you don't like being a follower of Jesus Christ because he himself was a servant and he says if I your Lord and Master have washed your feet you ought to wash each other's feet all of it throughout the reign of the Lord throughout the whole of the New Testament you find this one qualification being an absolute necessity do you like serving people or is it that you love you love the world it's just people you can't stand and yesterday I got a call from and I I got a call from a man, and the minute, the minute he heard his voice, everything in me tightened up. I just and I said, he's from uh, down in Texas, and I. Every time he calls, there's something about it. 
And I said to Louie, I said, well, I do not know why, but I have a hard time serving him, except serving him a, a, a death notice. I wish he would quit calling. I'm not like that about almost no one affects me like that, so I'm not there yet. I'm not where I ought to be. There's this thorn sticking in me, but besides, I wasn't going to mention that, uh, Okay, the second one of these is, in, is found in our text this morning. Our text this morning says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that. Now, the reason why I circled to show that, there's that word hina again. Hina. In order that, or to show that, this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. My goodness. Paul had had, he, he had a hard way to, to go. You may be having a hard rate, a way to go. You may be so discouraged at times you don't know what in the world you're going to do. Everyone in the world goes through some of this to some degree at some time. But the thing about the servants of God is that they come through it with almost a supernatural strength. They come through it. They're not crushed. They're not destroyed. Where a person who doesn't know the Lord, there is liable to go out and just get bashed and drunk. They can't, they can't stand the pressure. They can't stand what's going on. So they go out and take the exit that the world often takes. But these followers of Jesus Christ, they have some kind of a strength in them that people can look at it and say, well, I don't, know how he, I don't know how she's making it. I don't know how he's making it. Well, both of these that I've just mentioned have to do with the way the world perceives us. The Hena, as you mentioned, this is the way the world perceives us. This is what they see in us. When they see in us servants, and when they see in us a power to get through the struggles of life, and they can't quite understand. How are they doing it? How can you serve like this? How can you be, how can you overcome what you're under? Then Paul says, this is so that they might know that the power isn't in us. It's, it's above. Now, the next two of these have to do with the effect that this brokenness has on the vessel. These other two was the effect that the brokenness has on the people who are watching. The next two have to do with the effect that the brokenness has upon us who are the vessels themselves. Look, if you would. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 9. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that. Actually, the word that I've circled, but the word hina there uh, includes all of those four or five words. But this happened that. That's the, that's the dynamic equivalent of the word hina. You think you mean it takes five or six words? This has happened that. That's four words in order to translate that one little tiny word hina. Yeah. This has happened so that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. 
This is the effect that it has upon us. Whenever you're crushed, whenever you're pushed down, whenever you despair of life, whenever all these things are ripped away from you, the person who has his anchor in Jesus Christ does not succumb to that. He does not let it destroy him so that it might become obvious that the power is not in us, it's in, it's in God. So this is the, the third thing, and this first of these last two, has to do with the effect that it has upon us. And I'll call this desperation. Desperation. You can hear the, listen to him as he despairs. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. Praise God. The, the, the point of desperation. Have you ever reached the point of desperation? You have. You know, we left, uh, we left God declaring our independence. Adam and Eve left God declaring their independence. We don't need him. We'll become like him ourselves. We can become gods ourselves. They and we, it's not just Adam and Eve, you and I have gone down the same road declaring our independence. The way back to God is to take the same road back to total dependence. That's what he's talking about here. We were that there is there has got to come the place or the time and the place where you become so aware of your dependence upon God is that if it were not from for God, you wouldn't make it. I wouldn't make it. Turn over to Hebrews. Let me show you. We're not the first ones to go through this. In Hebrews the fifth chapter, our own Lord Himself chapter 5 verses 7 through 9 during the days of Jesus' life on earth he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission although he was a son he learned obedience from what he suffered he learned obedience from what he suffered you see he went he took the same route that you and I are to take to total dependence on his Father. Then turn over, if you will, to, to John, the uh, fifth chapter, and look at verse 30 first. Look at, there, look at that first. This will, this will surprise you. It did me when I first saw it. Verse 30, listen to this. See if you can imagine. By myself I can do nothing. By myself, I can do nothing. Well, my goodness. You mean he said that? Yep. Jesus said, by myself, I can do nothing. Look up in verse 20. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what the, he sees the Father doing. If that's not the absolute extreme for the Son of God to say... By myself, I can't do anything. You ever feel like that? That you know that there's a job to be done, there's a task to be taken care of. Well, by myself, I can do nothing. Well, don't worry about that. Jesus felt the same way. His total dependence on his Father was an absolute. It was one of the clearest things in all his life's record 
he always declared his dependence upon his father. Well, then there's a fourth thing. You've got to get beyond desperation. It's not good enough just to be desperate. It's not, to be, it's not good enough to just to be completely aware that you have no power. That's not good enough. Well, you say, well, what could there be beyond that? The fourth one of these is one beyond desperation is that of resignation. You've got to get okay with it. You've got to get over yourself. Landon Saunders saw this fellow coming through the airport one day just jumping over people and he had this badge on that said, get over yourself. We've got to get over ourselves. We've got to accept the fact that this is the way it is. Like it or not, you are not well enough, you're not good enough, you're not full enough, you're not powerful enough to do it on your own. You might as well accept the fact and shut your mouth. Okay. Let me show you. Turn over to this, well, this twelfth, the last one on this page. Paul had been given this privilege of, of seeing this magnificent ministry and the results of it and the wonderfulness of it and all. And then he says, to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? In weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that, and there's that little word hena again, in order that Christ's power may rest upon me. Are you okay with being a cracked pot? Are you all right with the realization, I haven't got it all together? Are you okay with being a sinner? And if it were not for the grace of God, you'd split hell wide open. Are you okay with that? That it's a gift. And if you don't accept it as a gift, freely as the grace of God is lavished upon you, if you're not comfortable with that, and if you're not willing to accept that, you're going to spend the rest of your life stewing. Stewing over how awful you are. Stewing over how inadequate you are. Until you finally say, well, good grief, okay. If that's the way, if that's what he wants, that's what, all right, I'm all right with that. So you've got these four attributes of the answer to the question, why on earth would God put this valuable treasure in such earthy pots? Four reasons. Qualification of service, recognition of where the power comes from, the desperation that we feel in order that we might not rely on ourselves, and then fourthly, resignation, that that's where the power comes from. It comes from Christ. In order that the power of Christ may rest upon us. Okay, are you clear with those four? Two of them have to do with the way the world sees this crackedness in us, and two of them have to do with, with our own awareness of, the, of being a cracked pot. Desperate, yes, but resigned to it, and that's where the peace comes that allows us to emerge out of the depression, out of the pit that we're in. It lets us emerge into the freedom of the sons of God and begin to participate in the power of this magnificent ministry that he's given us, of servanthood. Okay, now, 
Finally, we're called to the extremity of the brokenness. You know, the Spirit of God is, in a sense, the most intrusive. He, he's, a double, he's a double-edged sword. He catches you coming and going. In this text, if you'll turn again, I said to you, back to your text in chapter 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And then he talks about how hard-pressed he was and not crushed and perplexed and persecuted and struck down. But look at verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And he's talking to us, and the you here has to do with anyone who is exercising his ministry toward other people. The person who is doing the exercising of that ministry is always being given over to death. If the people who are listening to you, if the people who are watching us, if they don't see in us a person who has laid his life down then you've missed the point. They've missed being able to see what the real message is. If they see you give yourself, but you hate every minute of it, okay, okay, I'll come do this, or I'll, I'll go paint that, okay. If your wife sees you saying, okay, I'm, I'm so tired of you nagging me, you might as well not do it. Well, back off of that in a bit. You better go ahead and do it, but you better get a smile on your face while you're doing it. Paul says, if I give my body to be burned and don't have love, it doesn't profit a thing. But he calls us here to what is a universal principle. It's the death-life cycle. A death-life cycle. We're sitting right in the middle of one of them. At this point in our calendar, what is the, where are we sitting in the death cycle or the life or the death portion or the life portion we're sitting in the death portion we're in the middle of winter not long after this though what's going to happen life is going to recur it's going to reappear little buds will start coming the death life cycle in order for there to be life there must be death in the things that are physical last night we slept that's the death part of it then this morning we woke up it happens every 24 hours we go through this death life cycle. It happens in the life of a, of a mother. They go, through, they go through it with the cycle of their, of their reproduction process. Sloughing off and renewing, sloughing off and renewing. It, go, it happens everywhere. The salmon of the Pacific, they go back to their place where they were born. They live, they mature till they can lay eggs. They go back, lay the eggs, and then they go off and die. The cicada, if you, we have cicada here, the things that make such a loud noise, you know how long they live? Just long enough to mature and mate, and then they die. He's talking about here that the process by which a Christian becomes a productive minister of Jesus Christ is the same process. At the very beginning of time, when God created the heavens and the earth, he, after the, well, it was after the flood. After the flood, he said, as long as the, as long as the earth stands, 
Summer and winter, heat and cold, day and night, seed time and harvest will never cease. It's just built into us. It's built in. And it's built, isn't it amazing that the, the ministry to which we are called is absolutely in harmony with everything that's real. It's only what Satan has introduced that's not real. When the ministry that brings people back to God was revealed, you find out everywhere you look, it's, it's in agreement with what's real. Well, he calls us here to death. And let me show you just how important it is. Before there can be life, there must be death. The heart of Jesus' ministry as the Messiah was death. Back in Matthew 6, 21, or 16, 21, he said that he must, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things in the head at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It was part of his ministry. They didn't like it. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Because Peter wasn't in tune with the nature of the ministry. Peter was about as out of place among that twelve as any of the twelve. He was absolutely... They, they'd all, it all just went over the head. There are places where it says, He said to them, this to them plainly, I am going to die. Well, that didn't any more register than I'm going to be raised registered. Neither one of them. Peter said, that's not going to happen to you. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. It was, it was the central essence of the ministry of Jesus. This was why he came. And in John, the 12th chapter, he was talking to himself. And he said, now is my soul troubled even to death. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He said, no, this is the reason I've come to this hour. So we find that the central message of Jesus' ministry, but look also again, it's also the central message and the central quality of your and my ministry as followers of Jesus. Look at the next two verses down in verse 24. After Peter got his knuckles wrapped, Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. In other words, you're not thinking in terms of reality. The reality is, I'm going to have to die. Furthermore, he said, the reality is, you're going to have to die too. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and follow me. Take up his cross and follow me. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's the central core of our discipleship. And I'm wondering if we're listening any more than they listened. Peter didn't understand the central core of Jesus' ministry. Peter didn't understand the central core of his own ministry. And in a concrete way, whenever Peter was given the choice of either dying or living... And they said, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? He said, no, sir, I'm not one. I'm not one of his disciples. He did this three times. Because Peter could not swallow the pill. You're going to have to die. Now, it may have been that he would have died literally then at that point. But the fact of the matter is, he's calling all of us to die to ourselves. And I'll guarantee you, I'll testify, I don't like it. I'd rather not do it. 
What about you? Do you like it when you have to lay your life down for other people? Do you like it when you're called upon to lay your life down for your wife? Or to lay your life down for your husband? No. Or to lay your life down maybe for your children? Or for your friends? Or for your enemies? Jesus calls upon us to lay our life down for our enemies. Good grief. What does He expect of us? Precisely that. Nothing more than He Himself suffered. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, the servant is not above his Lord. I think he said something about it like that. Oh, my. Okay, look here again. It's not only the heart of Jesus' ministry. It's the heart of the disciples' ministry. It's the heart of conversion. This matter of death to ourselves is the heart of conversion. There's a familiar passage in Romans, the sixth chapter. And you know it, Romans 6, 2 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? God forbid. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Christ by baptism into His death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. So he talks about us in our very act of committing ourselves to, to Christ. He puts it in the figure of a, of a death and a resurrection. Before that can be the resurrection, it's got to be the death. And then later Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I think, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. And the life that I do live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. But He said, I've been crucified with Christ. There's one final thing, and this is really where it really centers. It's not only the part of our death, the heart of conversion. Dying to ourselves is the heart of reproduction. It's the heart of reproduction. Turn to, to John, the 12th chapter, please. Turn to John 12 and listen to this profound statement. 